Well, good morning to you, Providence. It is great to see you. If you join us online, it's good to have you as well. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors here. I have the joy to be able to teach you today. If you have your Bibles, Luke chapter 24. We're going to continue with a series we started last week, What's So Special About the Bible. And this morning, we have the joy of looking at the message of this incredible book. So I need a lot of help. I know you need a lot of help to listen to me. So let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your kindness to us. You have brought us through another sort of crazy week. Seems like each week is crazy. And so God, would you, by the power of your spirit, remove those things that so easily distract and entangle. God, help us to be present as we sit under this book. And we read it and it reads us and we get in it and it gets in us and help us to see the beauty of this amazing message. We love you. We thank you for Christ who has opened a way to know you, God. Unholy as a people, you fully holy. It's a huge gap between and only your son could fill it. And we're grateful for that. And so teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the fastest non-religious movements in our day and time is on the rise. It is the preference seemingly in our country, according to one research center. says that more than 20% in our country identify as atheist, agnostic, or non-religious. Among millennials, one study showed that four in 10 would consider themselves in a category that's a new association that has been identified as the nuns. They have no affiliation with anything. They're apathetic toward all of it. And what's interesting is that college after college continues to fuel this among the next generation. Think with me for a moment. In the 1600s, Harvard University. Harvard University founded to teach the Bible, to train leaders for ministry, adopted this motto in the 1600s, veritas, which is the Latin word for truth, truth for Christ and the church. Its original logo is here where you saw the word veritas parse out in a sense over three different, which looks like books. Of these books, the two on the top represented the Old and the New Testament. In the bottom book, you see the words for Latin for Christ and church on the side. The bottom book is actually turned upside down. And it was intentional by the founders and those who served at Harvard to symbolize the limits of reason and the need for God's revelation. It was a way to humble yourself under God's word. And yet, hundreds of years later, the motto took the words Christ and church out, and the word veritas is still on the shield, a new shield, over three books 
<clears throat> but what's fascinating is the bottom book, they have flipped open. As a sign, it says man's reasoning, man's wisdom is on par with that of God's word. And when we don't like <clears throat> what God's word says, then we can say whatever we want. The French philosopher Voltaire, who is not a Christian, I think sums up this movement. If, if God has made us in his image, we have returned him the favor. Well, in 2021, just last year, Harvard's Organization of Chaplains elected as its next president of the chaplains an atheist humanist named Greg Epstein. Shouldn't be too surprised. One article stated, Mr. <clears throat> Epstein's fellow campus chaplains, and there's many, at least the notion of being led by an atheist is not as counterintuitive as it might sound, for his election was unanimous among all the chaplains. Mr. Epstein would say, and hear my heart on this, like I'm broken over this. I'm not mad at Harvard and want to boycott it. I want to have a cup of coffee and process life in this book and engage. It's heartbreaking. Mr. Epstein says this, we don't look to God for answers. We are each other's answers. Now, second Sunday of the new year, started with a little bit of a bomb there. So let me have a little bit of a light moment for you, okay? If I'm anybody's answer, it's, it's going to be a mess. <laughs> and if you're anybody's answer, it's going to be a mess. A sinner fighting sin, still struggling with sin. When I think of myself, when I think when I get up to teach, the magnification on the readers is seemingly increasing each time I'm trying to read something. Just this past November, had my fifth knee surgery, uh, went ahead and replaced it. All the cartilage was gone on one side. That was extremely encouraging. Um, and then about three weeks later, some of the meds that they put in you probably didn't set quite right in the kidney. A uh, little stone hit. Um, my wife rushes me to the ER three weeks after knee surgery. Like, knee surgery is not enough, Lord. And, and I'm literally thinking, I mean, I'll, the knee surgery was like a Band-Aid compared to what the kidney stone was. The kidney stone, I, I, thought, I thought it was done. I thought it was over. I told Jules, I'm like, <laughs> tell the kids, love them. Uh, tell Providence, appreciate George serving you for a number of years. It was a, it was a joy. Uh, never had anything hurt so, so bad in my life. Matter of fact, when I, 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 we're family, so just here's some detail. Threw, <laughs> threw up about 40 times from the pain on 540, going to the ER, got the bag. Jules is driving, comforting. People are looking at me. I'm like, what are you looking at? Like, you don't know what's going on, right? Because we're at the stoplight. I just got a bag to my face. We, we get checked in in the ER. 
And I'm like, sweetie, there's like five people here. And it's like, I think you, it's first come, first serve. And so this isn't going to go well. Like I'm going down. Like he took Goliath, David took Goliath out with a stone. God taking me out with a stone. Like it's over. Uh, and so I ended up saying like, here's our strategy. Call 911 and ask for an EMT to come to the front of the hospital and put me in the back of that and then roll me around back and then they'll take me right in. Like whatever it takes, we gotta get, I gotta get something in me because I'm about to die. Listen, I'm a mess, you're a mess. And listen, the, the hope, the hope for the answers that we're all looking and longing for are not in us. It's in this book and it's in the hero of this book namely Jesus the Christ. Jesus says in John 14, verse six, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God the Father except through me. Some, some would say in the academic world that, that that's a narrow-minded statement. Listen, when I understand my unholiness and God's holiness, that I'm shocked there's one way. I mean, that's grace. They, the culture wants many ways. I'm shocked there's one way from an unholy people to a holy God that we can have access to him. And Jesus says, I am the God man, the one who has bridged a gap that none of us could ever bridge. And the Bible, why it's special, why you and I should savor it and study it and read it is because it has a spectacular remarkable message. It's a glorious message. And in a day and time when voice messages and text messaging and direct messaging is all over the place, there's a message in this book that I pray to God we never become too familiar with. That we would lean in and learn about and leverage our life to make known the message of this book to all people. And so this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to show you three reasons why the message of the Bible is so remarkably special. Three reasons why the message of the Bible is so special. The first reason is this. The message of the Bible shows God's plan of redemption for all people. The message of the Bible shows God's plan of redemption for all people. Luke chapter 24. Chapter 24 starts post resurrection. They come to the tomb and you notice in verse seven that the son of man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. He would rise and they remembered his words. Is not the Christian faith oftentimes fueled by remembering, remembering what he has said in his word and they remembered his words and they returned to the tomb. In verse 12, Peter rose and ran Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. Then we transition to verses 13 and following. These two are on the road to Emmaus, a few miles out of Jerusalem. Notice, pick up in verse 15. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Now think about Peter's marveling. They're rejoicing. Verse eight, they remembered these two. They're looking sad. They were talking. They were having this conversation. And then they 
approached Jesus, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, considering Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucify him. Now, verse 21 is key. Verse 21 says, but when, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this is now the third day since these things have happened. So they're sad by the phrase of this word in 21. They had hope, so they lost hope that he would be the one to redeem Israel. And they had forgotten the very promises of God, the very words of the Messiah as he promised the, the Son of God had to suffer. They think, they're thinking the, the bodies may be stolen. And their hope had been halted. No, listen, the Bible is very clear with the message. And for you and I, the benefit of this side of these things and having it in its totality, it has a message. Oh, it's 66 books, but it is one book. It's 1,189 chapters. And yes, it only took humanity three to mess everything up. But thematically, what I want to do with you this morning is I want to show you sort of nine themes that run throughout this book. Nine themes. So hang on with me. I'm going to put them on the screen, and then we're just going to unpack them briefly. Think about how this book opens. God's power is on display. Creation, all of creation. He has made everything. He makes the world. He makes light. He makes man and woman in his image different but equal in dignity and worth. Then he instructs them to enjoy life, enjoy relationship with him. And he gives one restriction, only one restriction. He gives numerous things they can do, but one restriction. Isn't that the human heart when the one thing we've been told not to do, we want to do? And then we have humanity's problem. It's a big problem. It's called in theological circles, the fall of mankind. Sin enters the world. They're not content with being with God. They wanted to be like God. And they, sin comes and it's chaos and God kicks them out of that garden. He says, if you do this, you will surely die. This is the wages of sin the death penalty on all of humanity. And yet, and yet in the midst of that, in the midst of that, God makes a promise and he demonstrates his love and grace in that promise and that he comes to them. He pursues them. He kills an animal and uses that animal's clo clothing to, to clothe them. And he makes a promise in Genesis 3.15. Some theologians believe it's the first gospel. It, they would categorize it as the first announcement of good news in the sense that, that God promises, listen, there's one that's going to come. He's going to be bruised, but he's going to crush the enemy's head. And there's a promise that one will make things right. In Genesis chapter 4 to 12, we see God's people. He's raising up these different incredible Enoch and, and Noah and then Abram, and he raises them up. He's trying to establish a people for his 
namesake that he wants to reveal himself to and then reveal himself through. This is what he is desiring to do. He, you see this in chapter 12 where he promises to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations to bless many nations. Then you see the rest of the Old Testament. The rest of the Old Testament is loaded with God's patience because rebellion and sin and consequences are all over the place. Kings rise and fall. Patriarchs, prophets rise, they fall. They trust, they don't trust. It's a mess. And then yet mercy and love are flowing throughout where there's snapshots of one who will come. One who will come to make things right. Then you see this silent period between the Old Testament and the New. And then the angel, which we just celebrated at Christmas, comes on the scene and says, Behold, I bring you great news of great joy. We see how the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospel according to each of them, the good news according to each of them is laid out. For in the fullness of time, Christ was sent And he lived the life that you and I could not live. And he died the death that you and I deserve. He was buried and then rose from the dead. He is the one who was both just and the justifier. God is just in demanding a penalty for our sin. And yet he's the justifier in meeting that standard of living, of perfection through his son. And then the very penalty of our sin being death itself, Christ takes upon himself the very wrath of God and drinks every last drop of it. Then you see in the book of Acts, it's amazing that book of Acts, it stands for the mighty acts of God through the spirit of God, right? The church is birthed at the preaching. Jesus ascends and the spirit of God comes and they proclaim good news and persecution comes. And every time they try to stomp out this good news, it spreads. It spread and it spread. It's reached you. It's reached me. And you see this and you see churches planted and God moving. The last verse in the book of Acts chapter 28 says, and this gospel was proclaimed unhindered. You can't stop this gospel from going forth. God's going to accomplish his word. Isaiah 55 says, as the rain falls and as the snow falls and it touches the ground, it affects everything that it does and it accomplishes the very purposes for which God has sent it. And this is what the gospel is doing. God's sending it out. Then you have the rest of the New Testament where Paul is writing letters back to these churches or writing to to pastors of these churches to encourage and exhort them. And sending these letters, and these letters are traveling hundreds, if not thousands of miles from Rome and back in different places, and God's preserving it and preserving it, and they receive it, and they read it among one another in a church setting. And Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 10.31 that the rest of this New Testament is how to live with each other and how to leverage your life for this message to get to all people. And Paul would say, 1 Corinthians 10.31, the very that whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. What is, why does he use eating and drinking? He's, he's choosing, right, the very basic necessities that we need for our existence. And he's saying, I want you to do that for the glory of God and everything above it for the glory of God. From business to law to medicine to athletics to homemaker to farmer to truck driver to coach to teacher to nurse, everything for the glory of God. We want to live for the glory of his name and make his name known and then leverage all of those places to tell people about the message that this book has told us 
who this Jesus is. Listen, in seminary back in the day, every mission class that we took, they would open every mission class with a video about this incredible missionary and his family named Mark Zook. Mark Zook in the 80s moved to Papua New Guinea, to the villages, deep into the villages. And as he moved there, he learned their language. He learned to write their language. And then he began to teach the Bible. And as he would teach the Bible, he would not start with the Gospels. He would start with Genesis and talk chronologically through the Bible. He would use huge papers and maps and, and stuffed animals, anything he could to just articulate the sacrificial system that God in, implemented in the Old Testament that would eventually lead to the sacrificial lamb. For three months, three times a day, the entire village would gather for the teaching. Some of the ladies that were having babies, they didn't want to miss the teaching, so they literally would set up on the side of where they were at, at teaching, and they would deliver children and then continue to take notes. They were so hungry to hear the story of purpose, of where we're from and why we're here and where we're going. Three to four months in, he begins to tell them about this man who comes on the scene who claims to be God, who is perfect and lives a perfect life and serves. He uses all of his power not to receive people serving him, but to serve others. And then when he gets to the cross where they crucified him, many in the village jump up and start yelling and screaming and go off like, who would do this to such a righteous man? And as he says, calm down, there's more to the story. Hold on. And, and they sit. And then he gets to the crucifixion and to the burial and the resurrection. And when he gets to the resurrection, the entire village react by this picture, picking him up and body surfing him for three hours. And they're shouting the entire time, Etau, 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 which in the Mook people group, that language, it means it is true, I believe, it is true, I believe. The entire village comes to faith in Christ. Mark and his wife had to move back to the States in the late 90s. His wife got really sick, had the opportunity to actually meet him, our past cross. We had lunch. He told me this entire story. It's amazing because I'd seen the video in school and then to get to meet him and hear it. It was remarkable. And so his children that were raised there moved back there after they learned some theological training. And they're training these people in this particular village group to plant churches in all the other villages deep in the jungles in Papua New Guinea by just teaching this entire message all the way through. And hundreds and hundreds and thousands are coming to faith in Christ. Listen. The message of the Bible, it shows God's plan of redemption. It shows God's plan of redemption for all people. But notice second, quickly, is the message of the Bible stars one hero, Jesus the Redeemer. It stars one hero. One of my favorite children's Bibles is one called G the Jesus Storybook Bible, and its tagline is this, Every book whispers his name. Every book whispers his name. Notice in verse 25 and following what happens. 
And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, think with me for just a moment. Slow of heart, foolish ones, slow. Why wouldn't you believe all that they spoke? Is it not necessary that the Christ should suffer? See, they believed the prophets selectively. And that's always a dangerous path when you pick and choose what you want. Look, they believe the prophets selectively as they embrace the Messiah ruler, but passages, but but, but ignoring the passages that predicted his sufferings. And what's fascinating, do you see it in verse 27, beginning with Moses? Who is Moses? He wrote the first five books of the Bible and all the prophets. So all the prophets throughout the Old Testament, he, Jesus, interpreted. You see that word? He interpreted to them. This word interpreted, we get our, it's the root word for our English word, hermeneutics. And hermeneutics is a word that is basically defined as the science of Bible interpretation. So think about this scene, right? If, if there's certain scenes in the Bible that I wish I could have just been a, a, a fly just somewhere by, just to listen in and see the reaction, this is one of them, right? Jesus walking along the road, interpreting. He's interpreting. Think about this. The word of God incarnate is explaining the written word of God. This is one of the greatest Bible story walks probably in the history of the world. And he's explaining to them. Later we would see in chapter 24, in, in, later in verse 44 and 45, we would see that everything was written about me. He's, he shows up with his disciples that, that are longing to what, what happened to the body. Where is this risen Savior? And he says, everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In verse 45, it says, he opened their minds to understand Scripture. Christ should suffer on the third day, rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. You see it unpa- unfold throughout the New Testament. Passages like, in Corinthians, Corinth was a, a city south of Athens in Greece, and there's a church plant there, and then Paul writes a letter called 1 Corinthians. He opens with the cross, and he closes with the resurrection, and he says in verse 3 of chapter 15, for I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. In Acts 26, Paul, he's brought before King Agrippa, and he says this, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses would said would come to pass, that Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light to all people. Notice in Acts chapter 8, Philip, Philip would encounter the Ethiopian reading the Old Testament, reading Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Isaiah is, is an amazing book in the Old Testament, written 700 years before Christ came. It predicts both his birth and where he would be born, and then his death. 
And the prediction of his death, it's so articulate the way it's written. And the Ethiopian is reading Isaiah 53, wondering who is this person. This is 700 years later. And Philip, the Bible says, beginning with this scripture, Isaiah 53, he told him the good news about Jesus. Listen, the message of the Bible stars one hero, Jesus the Redeemer. Tim Keller, a pastor in Manhattan, up in New York years ago, he was teaching at the Gospel Coalition and giving an overview of this book and the hero of it. He says this about a few of the patriarchs in the Bible and how much better Jesus is. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and to go out into the void, not knowing where he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who portrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast into the storm so that we might be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses. He's the real Passover lamb, the innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple and the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The message of the Bible is not about you. It's not about your happiness. It's about him, Jesus, the one who gives you hope. Listen, Jesus Christ is the most significant person in the history of the world. The question this morning is, do you know him in a personal relationship? Or do you know about him? And there's a vast difference. Do you know this son of God who has died for your sins, was buried and then rose from the dead, sent his spirit that when you act on faith and repent and turn and trust, he promises to come forgive you of your sins and give you joy, peace, and purpose even in hard days. Do you know the hero of this Bible? I pray to God this is the day that you would know him. Third and last is the message of the Bible shines light into our heart and shapes our mind. The message of the Bible, right? It shows us the grand plan, God's grand plan of redemption. It it shows us the message of the Bible, this one There's one hero, Jesus. But third is the message of the Bible shines light into your heart and it shapes your mind. Notice in verse 28 and following. Verse 28, so they drew near to the village which they were going and he, Jesus, acted as if he was going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he broke the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Verse 31, their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us 
while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Listen, the question when I'm studying this passage and reading, why wait and not tell them who he was? Why not immediately, immediately go and say, I'm the one? Why wait? One theologian commentator says this, as the incognito Christ was expounding the scriptures, the two had come to see the plausibility and indeed the necessity of the passion and the resurrection. Now they began to understand why the tomb was empty. They were divinely kept from recognizing Christ, so they would base their understanding of the resurrection squarely on the scripture and not on experience. A privileged experience such as this, if not grounded in the word, runs the danger of becoming a privatized, eccentric interpretation. He's he's saying, listen, I want you to see what the scriptures say about me before you actually see me. This is phenomenal what's happening. And then when, when is it that their eyes are open? Notice it's twice in the text. Verse 30 says, when he was at the table, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to him. Verse 35, they had left, the two, and they told what had happened on the road and how, watch this, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So twice we see it in these last few passages of when I believe the eyes were open. And one theologian says it like this. Many believe that the moment of recognition came as he broke the bread, that they saw the nail-pierced hands. The nail-pierced hands. The, The risen Savior speaking, doing a Bible study, and serving, serving bread. Speaking and serving, serving, handing the bread, they see the nail-scarred hands, and eyes are open, and the winter of soul begins to fade, and the ice of doubt was melting as the divine one spoke and served. Listen, Listen, God uses his word to cause our hearts to be regenerated, to, to be new. He, he, takes, he takes not a bad heart and makes it good. He takes a dead heart and makes it alive. This is what God does. We're spiritually dead in our sin, and Christ brings our dark, dead hearts to life. And our minds are transformed in how we think and see and live and leverage our life. The, the message of the gospel, listen, it's, it's clearly lays, lays, lays out that, that it changes your life forever. Psalm 119 says it like this, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It's a, it's a lamp to my feet, so it helps me identify who I am, my identity, who I am in Christ, how God's made me in his image. He's redeemed me. He gives purpose, so you're able to assess everything that's going on here, and it's a light into our path that gives us direction and guidance for all the days to come. And so listen, the message of the Bible, it shines light. It warms the heart. He does this. And I want to encourage you. I want to introduce you to a a resource, just a, a simple tool 
It's one of the, the best tools that I've found out there that we as a staff love leaning into. It's called thebibleproject.com. The Bible Project, it has multiple videos on all the different books of the Bible where they actually draw out exactly what the Bible's about, about that particular book. My family and I, a lot of times when we go on vacation, we'll pull one up and, and show it and watch it and then discuss it. But it's so helpful. We want to introduce you to this tool. This is a, a tool that I'll oftentimes, last summer, six, seven months ago, I was in England and got to engage with two college students that study philosophy and had no concept of the Bible, uh, of who God was or Jesus. And we're very open. And so we had a great dialogue. And so I've been sending emails with links from the Bible Project to both of these young men, engaging in incredible conversations. But I want to introduce you to it today. And this one is just an overview of story of the Bible. So check this out and I'll come back and close our time out. The Bible is an important book, but it's really long. Yeah, it's a collection of many books written over a long period of time, but altogether they tell one unified story. So, what's the story of the Bible? Well, it begins by introducing us to a beautiful mind, the author of all reality, a being called God. And he has the power to take the dark chaos of the uncreated world and bring about order and beauty and a garden full of life. And to crown this accomplishment, God appoints these creatures called humanity. Or in Hebrew, Adam. And they're made as God's image. Which means that they're commissioned to rule this beautiful world on God's behalf by harnessing all of its potential and creating even more beauty and order. This is a story about humans using their power to do meaningful, life-giving work. But the question is, how? Yeah, humanity now faces a choice that's represented by a fruit tree. So humans could partner with God and find freedom by trusting in his knowledge of good and evil. Or they could seize power and define good and evil on their own, which, God warns, will kill them. And they hear the voice of a dark, mysterious creature that tells them the choice is simple. Take the fruit. It'll give you power and freedom to rule the world on your own terms. And so they seize this knowledge. And as a result, they become suspicious and self-protective. It leads to fractured relationships, violent power grabs, and ultimately a whole civilization, Babylon, that has redefined evil as good. And so God scatters this corrupted human project. And here the story of the Bible takes an important turn. We zoom in to the story of a man and a woman who come out of Babylon, Abraham and Sarah. Yeah, God promises that from them will come a new people, a nation that has another chance to make the right choice. And if they succeed, it will open up this new way forward for the rest of humanity. And this is why the rest of the Bible story is about this family. And it does not go well. Despite God's personal guidance, Abraham's family gives in to that same temptation to redefine good and evil on their own terms, apart from God. Even when their best people were in charge, rulers who loved God's guidance and had divine wisdom, even they gave in. And so Israel was warned by their own prophets that these choices would lead them back to Babylon, this time as conquered captives living in exile, and that's exactly what happened. So even with God's personal guidance, Israel fails. Who can succeed? Well, the prophet said that the story wasn't over. God's going to send a new leader to Israel to cover for their failures and to transform the people's hearts and minds so that they can make the right choice. And so the part of the Bible called the Old Testament ends, and these promises are left hanging. 
And then the biblical story continues into the New Testament. We're introduced to a man who comes from the line of Israel's kings, Jesus of Nazareth. And he said that he was bringing all these promises to their completion. He confronted that dark, mysterious evil that all humanity has given into and resisted its power. And then he announced that God had arrived to rule the world through himself. Jesus taught about God's definition of good and evil, and he said that real power is serving others. According to Jesus, it's people who love the poor and even love their enemies. These are the kinds of people who actually rule the world. And that's confusing, but also really beautiful. And so is the claim that the story goes on to make about Jesus, that he is God become human, to be for Israel and for all humanity what we could never be for ourselves. He came to take the consequences of our evil into himself, and his sacrificial love proved more powerful than evil than even death itself. So now humanity's presented with a new choice. Represented by a new tree. Stick with the old way of being human, or venture into this new way. And in the story, those who choose the way of Jesus find themselves energized by God's own power. People who know that they are loved and forgiven by God can become people who love and forgive others in return. The Jesus movement quickly spread throughout the world, forming these new communities of people who follow the way of Jesus. But they faced problems. There was persecution from the outside by people in power, and inside there was confusion, even compromise. Yeah, because following Jesus is really hard. And so the movement's leaders, called apostles, they wrote letters to comfort and to challenge these communities to stay faithful to the difficult way of Jesus. And they're called to hope for the day when Jesus will come and change everything. And so the Bible ends by pointing to the future day, when all wrongs are made right, when evil is eradicated, heaven and earth are united, and humanity can rule the world together in the love and power of God. Okay, so that's the story of the Bible, and it brings all of these books together. But what's interesting is that each book contains a different kind of literature that contributes to this story in a unique way, and that's what the next video will begin to explore. Providence, the message could not be more majestic and the plot cannot be pondered enough. There's hero of this book, Jesus is the hope of the world. And so I would encourage you to, with a few things, just way of application as we close our time. The first is this, is just to repent and believe this message. If you've never believed this message and received it, then today, let that be today. I'd encourage you to meet with some of our team at the welcome desk in the lobby and and we plead with you to, today to believe this word, believe this good news of Christ. The second is to read your Bible, to, to encourage you. If you don't have a Bible reading plan, we can help you with that. We have Bible journals. They all came in this week, praise God. And so they're out by the welcome desk as well. That's just a, a tool that just kind of helps you stay consistent and maybe disciplined in reading through the Bible. If you've never done that, it'll change your life. That's what changed my life was the one-year Bible reading plan many years ago. God used it. The third is this. I just want to put this on your radar to think about is to resource helping translate the Bible, to, to resource it. And, and what I mean by that, Pastor Phil, our missions pastor, myself, Pastor Brian, you could talk to us. We can help point you to that. But some amazing things are happening with Bible translation. Some studies show that by 2033, 2033, that 95% of nations and people groups could have a full Bible in their language. 99% would have the New Testament in their language and 100% would 
would have some portion of scripture in their language. 2033, that's remarkable. And last is to run with urgency to tell everybody about this message. So even this week, may your feet move among this city, among your job, among your neighbors, with winsomeness and gentleness and humility and yet compassion to reach and to explain this incredible, incredible message of God's love for us found in Christ and in him alone. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Thank you for the opportunity to to gather today and to open this book. Thank you for preserving it uh, in our language to be able to have it. We don't take that for granted, God. So week in and week out, we stand here and open this book. It is just a gift. It's an absolute gift of your grace in our life. So thank you for that. I pray that you would help us to never become too familiar with it, that it would continue to stir our affections and stir our heart and shape our mind and the way we live and leverage our life to make your son known to many people. So God, would you, would you do a great work, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen.